Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as our special guest speaker delivers this week's message. A little over a month ago, I preached for the first time, and I am thankful for the opportunity to preach again. It is hard to believe that two weeks from today is Christmas. We are currently in the season of Advent, which is an exciting time of year, especially if you have young children like I do. This Advent has been a special one for my family because in addition to doing our Advent devotionals with our boys, my wife has made a great resource for parents and grandparents to use during Advent with their children called Glimpses of God During Christmas. While Advent is an exciting time, it is a time of waiting. And I don't know about you, but I do not like waiting. In today's society, so much has been done to reduce waiting, but it has also decreased our tolerance for waiting as well. Some may say that we've gotten soft. Back in the day, we actually had to wait to get something that we wanted. And now we pretty much have everything right at our fingertips. You can order something on Amazon at any hour of the day and have it delivered to your doorstep the next day. Even at amusement parks, you can buy the fast pass and avoid waiting in line. Each year in our month of waiting, the mark of the arrival of God himself in human flesh, we remember the people of God who waited centuries for the coming of the promised Messiah to rescue them. Ever since Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy of Christ's coming, the people of God waited for Jesus. Genesis 3.15, if you want to turn to there, it says, I will put enemy, enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we see here the promise that one special man, that one special man is Jesus, from the woman's seed, was going to destroy the works of the devil, although he would be wounded in the process. And there are many prophecies about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, and for centuries, God's people waited. Pastor Nate preached from Malachi recently. And from Malachi's final words of the Old Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, there are 400 years of silence. 400 years of prophetic silence is broken by John the Baptist's announcement that the promised Savior had come. And as we wait, as we wait now for the second coming, we replay the centuries of longing and yearning that preceded the coming of Christ. And when we do this, our joy in Christ deepens and sweetens. Because of his first coming, we too live with longing and yearning for Jesus' second coming. Advent reminds us of Christ's first coming while we watch and wait for his second coming. This morning, I want to look at two ways that we are to wait, by praying and fasting. Prayer and fasting was a normal practice as they waited for the first advent of Christ. An example of this could be found in Luke chapter 2. 
Luke chapter 2 starts with the birth of Jesus. And while we're there, I'd like to throw a little shout out to the D Kids Club that meets every Wednesday night during our prayer meetings. The children of the D Kids Club have memorized the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2. Just the other day, my five-year-old son Gibson recited all 20 verses to me by memory. I encourage you to come to our Christmas Eve service where they will recite from memory the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2. I'm sure you will get a blessing out of it. But later in Luke chapter 2, we are introduced to a prophetess named Anna. And let me read to you what the Bible says about Anna in Luke chapter 2, verse 36. It says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We see here that Anna worshiped with fasting and prayer night and day. And she surely prayed about many things, but from this text, we can be sure, we can be confident that one of the things that she prayed earnestly for was that God would soon send the promised deliverer, the Messiah. And that is why when she saw Jesus, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, prayer and fasting was normal practice as they waited for the first advent of Christ, and it should be normal for us as we wait for the second advent of Christ, which is the second coming. And this is the future return of Christ in glory when it is understood that he will set up his kingdom, judge his enemies, and reward the faithful living and dead. Last week, Peter taught from Exodus 12 how Passover pictures what we are waiting for. And this morning, we will look at how we are to wait. The title of my sermon this morning is How to Wait for Christ. And our text comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 18. Would you please stand with me as we read the honor, and we honor the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 18. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Praise God. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Thank you. You may be seated. Notice that this text doesn't say if you pray or if you fast. It says when you pray and when you fast. Jesus assumed that his followers would be praying and fasting as they await the second advent. And thankfully, Jesus teaches us to pray and fast. He also teaches us how not to. I have broken this passage down into three different sections. In the first section, I want to talk about what praying and fasting have in common. There are three repeated phrases in this text, and I want to talk about that because if they're repeated, then they must be important. When I was in school, I learned quickly that if a teacher repeats something, then it probably will be on a test. And now that I'm a teacher, I make it a point to repeat the important information. My first point for this section is that praying and fasting are a matter of the heart. In verse 5 and 16, Jesus warns us to not be like the hypocrites. Jesus describes how the praying and the fasting of the Pharisees was hypocritical. They practiced their acts of righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. They were like actors, and the world was their stage. If you put it in modern-day terms, they were seeing how many likes and comments that they could get on their social media page to feel good about themselves. They were so concerned about the performance, but God was not applauding. I like this definition of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is trying to look on the outside different than you are on the inside. You see, it is very possible to look like you are religious. It is very possible to look like you are a Christian, but your heart can be far from God. Matthew chapter 5, verses 7, and nine, 7 through 9, talks about this. It says, You hypocrites... Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, 
teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Hypocrisy has a devastating impact on the life of a church and on the representation of Christianity to a dying world. I'll say that again. Hypocrisy has a devastating impact on the life of a church and on the representation of Christianity to a dying world. There are many people who say that they don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with other people seeing us commit a righteous act, as long as being seen is not the motivation behind the action. Just one chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus had said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. The issue is whether our good deeds call attention only to us or whether they glorify God and draw others closer to him. And that should be our goal in everything that we do. My second point for this section is that they have received their reward. The hypocrites that love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners to be seen of others, and the hypocrites that gloomy and disfigure their faces when fasting to be seen by others, they have already received their reward. They might have long, eloquent prayers and be able to endure hunger, but God is not impressed. The only reward they will receive are man's empty praises. And this is a pitiful reward compared to the reward of God. Which leads me to the last point of this section. Your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. We see this phrase in verse 6, and then again in verse 18. Jesus described the father as the one who is in secret. God is ever-present. There is nowhere that we can go to escape God. We are to fast in secret, and we are to pray in secret. And this does not mean that we shouldn't pray with others or have public prayer. We just need to be careful and keep in mind who we are talking to. I remember hearing a story about a boy who was praying while his family was gathered around. The old grandfather tells the boy to speak up because he can't hear him. The boy's response was, that's okay, I wasn't talking to you anyway. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak up when we are praying with others. However, we need to keep in mind who we are talking to. When we are praying, we are not praying to impress others. A true Christian understands that we perform our righteous deeds to a private audience of one, and that is God. Everything that we do, we do for God. It's an audience of one. The self-righteous, that's not the case. They prefer the praise of men, and their reward is temporary, earthly, and fleeting. And in the end, eternal punishment awaits them. But those who choose the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ will pray and fast in secret, and the Father 
will openly reward their faith with eternal life in his kingdom. You see, the first time that Jesus came, the Magi brought him gifts. But the next time he comes, he will bring gifts and rewards for his own. In this next section, I want to focus on praying while we wait. And it's amazing, this is truly amazing, to think that the God of this universe, the God who made everything, the God of the Bible, the God who made you, the God who made me, invites us to pray to him, to communicate with him, and that he hears the prayers of his children. If you are a child of God, he hears your prayers. That truly is amazing. My first point on prayer is that the Father knows the things you need before you ask him. Psalm 139, and I love Psalm 139, it tells us that God knows our thoughts from afar and that he knows our words before they are formed on our tongue. I want to read to you the first four verses of Psalm 139. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my laying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. When we ask God for something, we are not catching him off guard. Sometimes the things that my children ask me, they catch me off guard. But that is not the case with our Heavenly Father. Our prayers, they don't surprise him, and nor do they change God's mind. It is important to know that God does not alter his eternal sovereign plan because of our prayers. When you think about it, it's crazy to think that. It is rather foolish to think that our prayers could change God's mind. How could our prayers change the mind of God? That we could show God that we have determined to do, that he, what he has determined to do was wrong until we set him straight. You see, God doesn't have a plan B that he puts into motion only at our requests. When we pray, our will is being conformed to God's will. And so prayer changes us. When we pray, our will is being conformed to God's will, and so prayer changes us. Prayer also changes things. James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And this is another thing that is mind-boggling to think about. But God uses our prayers as a means to bring about the ends that he has decreed from all eternity. The prayer of his people is one of the means he uses to bring things to pass in this world. My second point on prayer is that the Lord's prayer is a model for us while we wait. The Lord's Prayer is a short prayer that models how we should pray. 
The great reformer Martin Luther was once asked by his barber for advice on how to pray. Luther pointed to the Lord's Prayer and said the following, So as a diligent and good barber, you must keep your thoughts, senses, and eyes precisely on the hair and scissors or razor and not forget where you trimmed or shaved. For if you want to talk a lot or become distracted thinking about something else, you might well cut someone's nose or mouth or even his throat. Obviously, his point was that a distracted barber is a dangerous one. He went on to say, how much more does a prayer need to have the undivided attention of the whole heart alone if it is to be a good prayer? The Lord's Prayer starts by reminding us of who we are praying to, and that's why it starts by saying, Our Father. The first petition is that God would hollow his name. And this is saying that God's name should be separated from every other name. Every other name is in one category, but the name of God is separate and hollowed. Kevin DeYoung writes, I'm speaking to God, my heavenly Father, and I want his name to be made great in all the earth. And this is why the Weesey family, they moved across the world because they want his name to be made great in all the earth. And this is our motivation to share the gospel with others because we have a deep desire to make God's name great. The young goes on to write, so it's a fully Christian thing to do to bring our needs to God. But we remember that above all, that is this desire that God's name would be praised, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. And this is the basis of all of our prayers. And that is why Jesus gives us this model of prayer. He teaches us to pray. And that is what is to be the basis of all of our prayers. That God's name would be praised, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done. In this last section of uh, uh, prayer, on this last section, I want to focus on fasting. The Bible doesn't tell us when to fast, where to fast, how long to fast, or even methods of fasting. However, Jesus assumes that we will fast on certain occasions. Fasting is actually pretty popular in today's society, but it must not be confused with biblical fasting. There are actually many benefits to fasting. For example, did you know that if you fast, you will lose weight? Right? That's pretty crazy, right? If you don't eat, you're going to lose weight. It seems like a simple concept. I can remember on one occasion, as you know, I'm a wrestling coach. We weighed in one of our wrestlers in after the practice the day before a weigh-in, and he was on weight. The following morning, he came in overweight. And so I asked him what he ate since we last checked his weight. His response was, and I love this, I didn't eat or drink anything. 
So it's a miracle then. You didn't eat or drink anything. You gained three pounds overnight was my response. And eventually the truth came out. Another obvious benefit of fasting is that you'll save money. <laughs> Obviously, if you don't buy food, you're going to save money. And nowadays, you're going to save a lot of money by not buying food, right? In fact, many of us would be rich if we didn't have to buy food. Some of you may be familiar with intermittent fasting, where you only eat during a specific time each day and go long periods of time without eating. I have known people that have done this before. You see, there's fasting, and then there is biblical fasting. And I would venture to say that many of us are not familiar with fasting. Now, some of you may say that I fast between meals, <laughs> or between snacks, right? Or when I'm sleeping. Or here's one that I've done before. When I know that I have a good meal coming up, I will sometimes skip a meal or two with the idea that my hunger will make the meal taste that much better and be even more satisfying. Maybe you've done that as well. And there is truth to that. But again, this is not the fasting that Jesus is talking about. My first point on fasting is that biblical fasting is a response to spiritual struggle. Biblical fasting is a response to spiritual struggle. In every scriptural account, genuine fasting is linked with prayer. You can pray without fasting, but you cannot fast biblically without praying. Fasting is an affirmation of intense prayer, a corollary of deep spiritual struggle before God. It is a response when you are so consumed with this deep spiritual struggle that you don't eat. Your time is spent praying and studying God's word. Now, I like to eat, and I'm sure most of you do. In fact, some of you might be saying, can you please wrap this up so I can eat, go eat now, right? However, there have been times when I have been consumed with something that I didn't eat. I have heard of people so consumed in a video game that they don't even break to go get something to eat. And this is what it is to be fasting, that we are so consumed with this deep spiritual struggle. We are so consumed with praying and studying God's word that we don't even think to eat. And there are many examples of fasting in the Bible in both the Old and the New Testament. I already mentioned one with Anna. But here's some others. In the Old Testament, we see that David fasted while mourning his child's illness after committing adultery with Bathsheba. It so consumed him. Moses fasted before receiving the commandments. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus fasted for 40 days. For 40 days he fasted before being tempted by Satan and starting his public ministry. 
Another example is Paul fasted after his conversion. And from these examples, we can see that fasting is a heart hungering for God. It is not a spiritual gimmick. Martin Lord-Jones says there are some people who fast because they expect direct and immediate results from it. We should not be superstitious about fasting. When fasting is done for any other reason apart from knowing and following the Lord's will, it has no value at all, and it becomes a spiritual hindrance and sin. Let me say that again. Our fasting should come out of a deep hungering for God. It is a response to a spiritual battle that is going on. And when we fast for any other reason, apart from knowing and following the Lord's will, it has no value at all. And it becomes a spiritual hindrance and sin. My second point on fasting is that Christian fasting is a way of expressing our longing for the bridegroom. And that bridegroom is Jesus Christ, our King. It is a longing for Jesus to return. And that is the connection between fasting and the second coming of Christ. Let's look at Matthew chapter 9. Just turn a few pages over from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 16. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus says here that his disciples are not fasting while he is with them. He is the bridegroom present. And we don't fast when the bridegroom is present. But when he has gone away, and which he has, right, because he's gone back to heaven, he says, then the disciples will fast. Are you longing for the bridegroom to return so much that your only reasonable response is to fast and pray. Think about that. Nobody knows when Jesus is returning. We know that he is, and we must be ready. When Jesus returns, and I talked about this earlier, the rewards, when Jesus returns, he is bringing his reward with him. Revelation 22:12. It says, "Behold, I am coming soon." He's coming soon. Bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus is promising that he will come again, and when he does, he's going to recompense each person according to his deeds. Faithful believers, 
those who have come to Jesus in repentance and faith and have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus can anticipate rewards. That is very comforting to think about. We can anticipate rewards when he returns if you are a true child of God. However, unbelievers must face punishment. When the Apostle Paul neared his execution, he looked forward to receiving the crown of righteousness that the Lord would award to him. And this award is not only for him. Praise God, it's not only for him. He said that all who love Jesus' appearing will also receive the crown of righteousness. And that is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. In fact, let's go ahead and read that verse. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The Lord is a righteous judge. And I talked about this last time I preached, that the Lord is a righteous judge. And I don't know about you, but the thought of a crown of righteous being laid, righteousness being laid up for me is pretty amazing. That's something that should consume our minds, that there's a crown of righteousness being laid up for his children. And there are other crowns mentioned in James chapter 1, verse 12, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, that are promised to faithful believers that will be awarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Praise God for that. However, for unbelievers, there is another judgment coming. And this is what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment, and it's mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. And that will be the final judgment of the wicked prior to their being cast into the lake of fire, and that is the second death. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would come to him today. This season of Advent and Christmas will take on a whole different meaning to you. For those that do know Christ, pray and fast during this time of waiting. Tell others of the good news. We have gospel tracts out in the lobby. Here's two of them, but there are many of them. Take these. This will help you share the gospel with other people. There will come a day when the waiting will be over. And for the time for the Christian, oh, what a glorious day that will be. We are waiting for the promised Savior, Jesus Christ, to return.
And soon that waiting will be over. And again, that will be a glorious day. Let's pray. Father God, during this time of Advent, I pray that you would work in the hearts of your people. I pray that we would pray and fast in a way that is pleasing to you and worthy of the rewards that you promise. Help us to love Jesus so much that his coming would be the greatest thing that we can imagine. I pray also for unbelievers that you would save them. The thought of them before the great white throne judgment is terrifying. I pray that you would use us to share the gospel with them. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.